Shortly after my 19th birthday, I began serving at this church as what was called at the time a ministry intern. I grew up at this church, and after I graduated from high school and really from the youth ministry here, I was given a partial scholarship to attend a Bible college up in Marietta. So I began attending that school in the fall of 1998 after I'd graduated from high school. And about halfway through the first semester, I found that I had a growing desire to come back home to serve at this church because although the Bible college program was a great program, I came to realize that a lot of the things that I was learning at the school were things that I had been taught here through the regular ministry of this church. But the thing that was missing in the Bible college program was an opportunity to regularly serve at a church or this church. And I missed that. Now, when I began to have that desire to come back here to serve, there wasn't an opportunity really to come back down to the church to serve here. I didn't have any real reason to leave the Bible college to do that. But a couple of weeks after I started to have that desire, I was here on a Sunday and after church, one of the pastors talked with me and asked me if I would be interested in leaving the Bible college program to join the staff here as a ministry intern in the new year. It didn't take me very long at that moment to say yes to that question. So in January of 1999, I started serving here full-time as a non-paid intern at the church. And thankfully, my parents were okay with me uh, leaving school and coming here and working for, for basically nothing and living at home. When I first started serving here, my job was pretty simple, like for a lot of people who start serving in ministry. I did just about whatever needed to be done. If there was a computer that needed to be fixed or a printer that needed to be fixed, then I was an IT guy. If there were phones that needed to be answered, then I was a receptionist. If there was cleaning in the bathrooms or emptying of trash that needed to be done, then I was a janitor. And so I did whatever needed to be done. And when all of those things were done, then it was time to walk around here at the facility and find something else that needed to be done and then do it. And I absolutely loved doing that. And then just about a month after I started working here, I was flagged down one day as I was leaving the parking lot. I, I believe it was on a Tuesday afternoon and flagged down by one of the pastors, our youth pastor, Pastor Tony, who still attends here at the church. And so he had me pull over to the side real quick. I rolled down my window and he said to me as I was sitting in my car, he's standing outside the car, he said, Miles, I want you to consider doing something for me. And I, I kind of said, well, okay. And Tony said, as you know, our junior high youth pastor is moving to Arizona and I want you to consider teaching the junior high youth ministry. Now, that was not something that I felt like I was ready to do or it wasn't even really something that I felt like I wanted to do. But what do you do when someone who you look up to, even if he is a lot shorter than you, what do you do when someone you look up to asks you to do something that you don't want to do and you don't want to say no because it's not the very Christian-like thing to say no when someone asks you to teach the Bible especially. So what you do is you give the, the Christian no and you say something like, well, I'll pray about it. And so that's what I did. I told Tony that I would pray about it. But that night I actually did go home and I prayed about it. And when I did, 
something happened that I wasn't really expecting. Have you ever had that happen before where uh, you, you pray and you, you find that God does do something, but it wasn't what you were expecting him to do? That's exactly what happened in that moment. At the time that that happened, I was reading through the scriptures, just like I try to do every single day. And I was going a chapter in the Old Testament, maybe two chapters in the Old Testament, a chapter or two in the New Testament every single day. And I would often do that at night. And so that night I prayed and I don't remember exactly what the prayer was, but it was something like, God, as you know, uh, Tony asked me to consider teaching the junior high and I told him that I pray about it. So I'm praying about it. And as you may know, I don't really want to teach the junior high and I'm not a teacher and I'm not a public speaker, and I don't think that I can do this, but I am praying about it because I said that I would pray about it, and you need to show me what it is that you want me to do. I, I want you to speak to me, and it is my conviction that God speaks. If he speaks, he speaks primarily through the scriptures, and so I, I came to the Lord, and I said, you know, I, I need to know from you what you want me to do, and so I was reading in the scriptures. Now, the, probably, the, the prayer probably wasn't like that entirely, but it was probably something close to that, and I didn't really want to teach the junior high here at the church. It intimidated me. And I absolutely did not feel like I was ready to do that. But I did pray. And then I opened up to the scriptures. And at that moment, as I was reading through the Bible systematically, my encouragement to you is that you read through the scriptures at least, you know, a chapter a day through something, Old Testament, New Testament. Just go progressively through the scriptures. I think that that is a really good place to start. And if it's not a chapter today, a day, read five verses a day and then go to the next five verses the next day. But I was reading through the scriptures at that point in time in early February, 1999. I was reading in 1 Samuel and the book of Ephesians. And I happened to be in 1 Samuel chapter 12 at that moment on that night as I was praying and asking the Lord about what he wanted me to do with the youth ministry here at the church. And this is what I read at the end of 1 Samuel chapter 12, beginning at verse 23. Samuel says, Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you, but I will teach you the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all of your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. So, I didn't expect when I prayed that prayer after Tony had asked me to consider teaching the junior high ministry, I didn't expect that I would go and immediately read something like that. To read there that I'm going to teach you and show you the good and the right way. But that's exactly what I saw. Maybe it's a coincidence, but I don't think it was. And then I read this in Ephesians chapter 4. I was reading through 1 Samuel at that time and through the book of Ephesians. So in Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul writes this, and he, Jesus, himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So I read those passages of scripture and then the following Sunday, it was February 14th, 1999, Valentine's Day. The following Sunday after I read those things, I began to teach the junior high youth here at the church. And I have been teaching through the scriptures, teaching you the good and the right way for the last 22 and a half years. 
and I have been committed to equipping the saints. Those are Christians. Saints are just Christians, not some highfalutin super spiritual people, just regular old Christians. Equipping the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. This is not my job. It is not my career or vocation. This truly is my calling. When I think about this calling, I, rem I am reminded of what the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in the ancient city of Colossae, Colossians, Colossians chapter 1, beginning at verse 28. Paul says this to the church at Colossae. He says, Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end I labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. I bring all of this up this morning because I believe it's relevant at this moment as we are in a series here at the church, which we started last week called The Disciplines of a Disciple. In all that has happened over the last year and a half here in our culture, I have had a strong sense that we, as a church, we need to go back to some of the basics, back to some of the first principles of our faith, back to principles of discipleship, of growing toward maturity as Christians. And this is exactly what my calling has been. It is around teaching those who are followers of Jesus, disciples of Christ, teaching and equipping you to follow him more faithfully. And everything that's been going on in our culture over the last 18 months has really driven home for me how really important that is. So because of that that sense that I've had over the last several months. In August, I did a series laying the groundwork for our faith and our trust in Christ in, that, in a series that was called First Things First. And again, you can find that on our YouTube channel or you can find it on our website, lifeinconnection.com. And now we are continuing on from that series to talk about the first principles of what it is to be a disciple. And a disciple is an obedient follower of Jesus. So what are the principles of being a disciple, an obedient follower of Jesus? And how do we grow in our discipleship? How do we grow as disciples? So that's what we are looking at in this series or what I'm aiming to look at in this series. So as a preview of where I hope that we will go over the next several weeks, I want to talk about several things that I think are important for us as followers of Jesus. And not just important, these are essentials for being a follower of Jesus, for being a Christian. If you are a Christian and you are to grow in your faith in Christ and your trust in Christ, and not just your trust in Christ, but your faithfulness to Christ, then we need to be discipled. We need to be raised up in the faith. My calling has everything to do with teaching the faith of Christ in such a way that those who trust in Christ will be better equipped to be able to follow and serve him. We preach Christ so that we may see you grow toward maturity in Christ. And that is my hope for you. I want you to grow up as a follower of Christ. This is the desire of every parent. I have four children and the desire of every parent is to see them grow up and grow out into adults and really move into life and do life well. And so as a, as a pastor, my desire is to see those who are a part of the church that God has called me to serve to grow up and move out into the life that God has called them to live as followers, as Christians, to fulfill the purpose for which he made you. God made you for a purpose and he wants you to fulfill that purpose. And we want to equip you to more effectively fulfill that purpose. So as a preview, 
of where we're going, of some of the essentials. In this series, we're going to talk about the work of the Word of God in the life of the Christian. As I said, you know, 22 years ago, I was reading through the scriptures, some in the Old Testament, some in the New Testament, every single day. I still make it my aim every single day. I don't, I don't always fulfill this, but my aim every single day is to spend time reading through the scriptures. And I know that the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, and it is able to transform us. It is able to correct and reprove and rebuke us and to instruct us in righteousness. So, so the Word of God. We're going to talk about how we take in the Word of God and allow it to change and transform us in this series. But we're also going to talk about the place of prayer. Because through the Word of God, this is the chief way that God speaks to us. And prayer is the primary way that we speak to God. And prayer is supposed to be a two-way conversation that we bring our needs and our requests and our desires and we intercede on behalf of other people. We bring all of those things to God in prayer, trusting that God hears us. And so we're talking to him and we trust that he's going to speak to us through his word and through the body of Christ, through other believers. So we're going to talk about the word of God. We're going to talk about prayer, but we're also going to talk about the work of the Holy Spirit in our walk as we are seeking to grow toward maturity and become more faithful followers of Jesus and stronger in our faith in Jesus, our trust in Jesus. We need the word of God. We need prayer. We need the work of the spirit of God in our lives. Jesus promised that he would not leave us as orphans when he ascended into heaven, but he would give us the spirit of truth who would guide us into all truth and teach us all things. So we're going to talk a little bit about the Holy Spirit. And then we're also going to talk about the church and your place in the church. These four things, the word of God, prayer, the Holy Spirit, and the church are essentials for us to grow in our faith and walk with Christ. But as I began to express in my message last week, all of those things, the word of God, prayer, the Holy Spirit, the church, all of those things, they're great, they're essential, they're important, but you cannot jump into the disciplines of a disciple, of a follower of Christ, without talking first about how to become a disciple and a follower of Christ. And if you're going to talk about those things, how to become a follower of Christ, you need to go back and talk about salvation. And unfortunately, I didn't get nearly as far as I had planned in my message last week. So this week is kind of like salvation part two. And I can think of no better place to begin when you're thinking about salvation than probably the most famous verse in the Bible and perhaps the most famous chapter in the Bible. And the most famous verse in the Bible and probably the most famous chapter of the Bible is John chapter 3, verse 16. And maybe you've seen it in the end zone. We're coming into football season again here and you see some guy holding the big sign that says John 3, 16. This is that verse. There we read in John chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. John chapter three, verse 16, is probably the most translated verse of the Bible. It is possibly the most well-known verse of the Bible. And if you had to know just one verse, there's probably no better place to begin than John chapter three, verse 16. The simple teaching of the scriptures, the simplest teaching of the Bible is that all have sinned and fallen short of God's perfect standard of his glorious righteousness. 
That's what we read in the New Testament book of Romans chapter 3, verse 23. We all have sinned and fallen short of God's perfect standard of his righteous, glorious greatness. Secondly, the consequences of our sin, and, and sin is where we reject God's call, command, and law. We disobey. The consequences of that sin is death, and not just a physical death. We all understand that every single thing that lives is going to physically die. But the Bible also describes what is called sometimes the second death. And the second death is in eternal death and separation from God forever. You see, God made you to live forever. That's his desire, that you would live forever. But there is the possibility that you could die forever. And the consequence of sin is eternal death and separation from God forever. But the story goes on from there. So all has sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. But God loved us, his creation, so much that he sent his son to rescue us from sin and death. John chapter 3, verse 16. Jesus literally came here on a mission from God and a mission to rescue us, a rescue mission. And Jesus demonstrates God's love towards us in that while we were still sinners, when we were still his enemies, far from him, Christ died for us on the cross. That's Romans chapter 5, verse 8. So four really important verses there. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. John 3.16, but God loved the world so much that he sent his son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the simple and essential message of the gospel. I, I referenced this last week. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15 says that this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Paul adds there, of whom I am chief. And when Jesus came to this world, his parents were told that you shall call his name Jesus, which means Jehovah is salvation, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, this is truly good news which is why it is called gospel. Sometimes you hear that word gospel. Gospel simply means good news. It comes from the Greek word euangelion, where we get our word evangelize or evangelism, where we get my daughter's name, evangeline. So euangelion is the good news. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that we were dead in trespasses and sins, but Jesus came to rescue us because of his great love and his mercy for us. But you may think that's really good news. It's good news for all those sinners that are out there, but I'm a pretty good person, which is what a lot of people think. But John chapter 3, where that very famous verse, John chapter 3, verse 16, for God so loved the world, that verse is nestled in this whole chapter. And John chapter 3 is a very powerful and interesting passage because when Jesus says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life, he is speaking to or having a conversation with a very religious guy, a hyper-religious and probably hyper-self-righteous man named Nicodemus. And what Jesus said to Nick, we'll call him Nick, before he told him about God's love and salvation, kind of exploded Nicodemus's brain. And so I want to read through it. And hopefully you'll follow along. The words will be up on the screen, but hopefully you have your own Bible or you got your Bible app. Follow along as I read through John chapter 3, verses 1 through 17 that give us the, the layout of those two verses that I read just a little bit ago. And remember, Nicodemus was one of the chief rabbis. He was 
a very righteous and religious man. And Jesus and he had a conversation one night in Jerusalem. And this is what we find in John chapter 3, verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and he said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one could do these signs that you do unless God was with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone that is born of the spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, how can these things be? His, his head is kind of exploding at this point. Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and you do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I have told you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven but he who has come down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Nicodemus was a good guy. He was very religious, very holy, very honorable. And he was respected and looked up to in Israel 2,000 years ago. But even to Nick, to Nicodemus, the hyper-religious super righteous ruler and rabbi, even to this guy, Jesus says, unless you are born again, you will not be with God. And this midnight conversation with Jesus reveals an important point. Your good works and religious righteousness will not save you. Let me say that again. That's really important. Your good works and your religious righteousness will not save you. If Nicodemus wasn't good enough and righteous enough to save himself, you and I have absolutely no hope. He was of the most religiously committed sect in Israel called the Pharisees. And Jesus in what's called the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 verse 20, he says, For I say to you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You have got to be better than the most religious, the most righteous. And even that would not be enough because all of our righteousness is as filthy rags before a perfectly holy God. We are all an unclean thing. In Isaiah 53, Isaiah says, we all like sheep have turned away. We've all gone astray. We've all done wickedly. And your good works and your religious righteousness will not save you, which is a major problem because we live in a culture filled with a lot of really good people who are trying really hard to do the right things. Those things ultimately on the day of Christ Jesus will not rescue you and save you from the power of sin, the penalty of sin. So this is a really important point. Nicodemus was, he was really a, a right on good guy, but he was not good enough. And this blew Nicodemus's mind. He said, how can this be? But 
as much as it blew his mind, it was still true. So if it is true, how then do we have any hope of salvation? How then can we possibly hope to be with God? And I, I believe that God made us to be in relationship with him, connected to him and with him forever. So how can we be connected to him if we are disconnected from him because of sin? How then can we be saved? Well, what did Jesus say? He said there in that passage, you must be born again. But that confused Nicodemus, and it might confuse you as well. So Jesus kept going. He says to him, do not marvel that I said to you that you must be born again. You, you have to be born again by the Spirit. Okay, but how does that happen? Well, here's how. He, he gives us an interesting illustration to Nicodemus. And Nicodemus would have known exactly what Jesus was talking about when he brings up Moses and he brings up this serpent. You may not know what that's all about, but Nicodemus was an expert on the Old Testament scriptures. So the Old Testament is the first two thirds of the Bible from Genesis to Malachi. Nicodemus was an expert on that. He probably had very large sections of it memorized. And so Jesus reminds him of that. He says, how is a person born by the spirit? How is a person born again? Well, he says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up so that whoever believes on him should not perish, but have eternal life. Okay, what is that all about? You might be a little bit confused when Jesus brings up this serpent in the wilderness and he's talking about, you know, Moses lifting up this serpent in the wilderness in the very same way Jesus is going to be lifted up and whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What, what is he talking about? Well, an explanation is necessary. Thousands of years ago, when the people of Israel, the children of Israel were redeemed from Egypt by Moses, maybe you saw Prince of Egypt or maybe you saw that weird, uh, you know, Gods and Kings movie with <laughs> Christian Bale, or you saw the old Ten Commandments movie. So you remember the story of Moses went down to Egypt and he says to Pharaoh, let my people go. There's 10 plagues. The children of Israel come out of Egypt. They cross over the Red Sea on dry ground. They come into the wilderness on their way to the promised land. So they're in the wilderness for a very long period of time. And while they're in the wilderness, at a certain point, the book of Numbers tells us that they came to this one wilderness where the people were, they weren't in a really good place with God. And now these venomous snakes come in among the camp of Israel. They're called fiery serpents in the Old Testament book of Numbers. And the people that were bitten by these snakes, these venomous snakes, they all start dying. So the people start freaking out just like you would. If there were venomous snakes going around your camp and killing people, you'd be freaking out. So they go to Moses and they cry out and they say, Moses, you got to fix this. And so Moses the book of Numbers tells us that he goes to God and in Numbers chapter 21, that's where this story is found. And if you go to the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis is the first book, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, the fourth book of the Bible, 21st chapter, Moses has this conversation with God about these snakes in the wilderness and not snakes on a plane, snakes in the wilderness. Numbers 21 verse eight, then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole and it shall be that everyone who is bitten when he looks at it shall be made alive. They shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and he put it up on a pole in the midst of the, of the camp of Israel. So it was, if the serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. This is a strange story. Now, if you had been in the camp of Israel thousands of years ago, and people were being bitten and killed by these fiery serpents, by these venomous snakes. And then Moses comes to you and says, all right, I've got the remedy for this. I've got the fix. Here's what you're going to do. If you're bitten by the snake, all you have to do is look at that bronze snake that I made. I put it on a pole in the middle of the camp. All you have to do is look at that thing 
and you will be saved. And because we're stubborn and hard-headed and sometimes kind of dumb, you probably would have thought to yourself, I don't need to do that. That's not going to help me. You know, this, these snakes, they're not that bad, and they're not going to get me, and I'm okay, and everything's just fine. So you probably, because you're stubborn and I'm dumb, you probably would have said, well, that's just stupid. I'm not going to look at that thing. And you know what? We probably would have died. And a lot of people did die because they were unwilling to do that thing that just seemed like, how's that going to help me? And they refused to look at the snake. But why did that whole thing happen? In the New Testament book, I've, I mentioned this a number of times, in the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul says all these things happened to the children of Israel as instructive teaching pictures for us. <laughs> they are to teach us. So why did this happen? It happened because God was going to do something later on that was connected to this. Why did Moses put this snake up on the pole and all the people just had to look to it? Well, it's a lesson. All these things in the Old Testament were written for our instruction, our admonition. And now you come to John chapter 3. Jesus is having this conversation with Nicodemus one night. And Nicodemus is saying, how can I be born again? How can I be born by the Spirit? And he says, in the very same way that Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man, that's Jesus, is going to be lifted up. Lifted up how? Lifted up on a cross. Even so the Son of Man is going to be lifted up so that whoever believes in him, trusts in him, looks to him, they will not perish but have everlasting life. Only trust in Jesus Christ's finished work on the cross will save you from your sins. This is so important. We will not be able to save ourselves by our good works. Only trust in Jesus Christ's finished work on the cross will save you from your sins. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And he did so. He, he brings this salvation by dying in our place on the cross, by being lifted up on the cross. And as we trust in his work on our behalf, we can be saved. But that begs the question, what does it even mean to be saved from our sins? And this is key. When the Bible talks about this concept of salvation, it can sometimes be a little bit confusing because the biblical authors will write that we are saved, like past tense. They will say, we are saved. It is a finished and accomplished act. And often the word is not only in the past tense or appears in the past tense in our Bibles, but it is also in the passive voice, meaning that this salvation is an action acted upon you. Someone else has done the saving. So the Bible says in various places that you are saved. For example, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which you are saved. You have been saved by somebody else, past tense. If you have received the good news of the gospel and trusted in the finished work of Christ Jesus on your behalf, then the Bible says that you presently, at this moment, you are saved. You have been saved. In another place, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. By God's grace and your trust in the mercy and grace of Christ, you have been saved. So where's the confusion? Well, the confusion comes when you also read in the New Testament of the Bible that those who have trusted in Christ are being saved. So some passages say we are saved or we have been saved, but then there are other passages that say we are being saved. And this thing called salvation 
in some passages of the Bible seems like it is not a completed act, but a process that is taking place. For example, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Or 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 14, now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place, verse 15, for we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. So that can be a little bit confusing. We're told that you have been saved or you are saved, but then another passage says you are being saved. And then the confusion is amplified when you read that salvation seems to be something that is yet in the future and that we shall be saved. For example, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8, the Apostle Paul, he writes there that we have the hope of salvation. And then in, in Romans chapter 13, verse 11, the Apostle Paul says this, And do this knowing the time, that now it is high time for you to awake out of your sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. So it seems like salvation is something in the future. It's, it's closer than when we first believed, but I thought I, I thought I was saved. And wait a minute, I'm being saved, but salvation is in the future? Romans chapter 10, verse 13, for whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So that can be a little bit confusing. Have I been saved? Am I being saved? Or am I waiting to be saved? The Bible, as I read through the whole of Scripture, it seems to speak about salvation in, in each of these ways. And really, in reality, there's nothing here to be confused about when you begin to understand what is going on and what we would call the doctrine of salvation or what you would refer to if you were taking a theology class, you'd refer to it as soteriology. Soteriology is just a big theological term. You can impress your friends by telling them all about soteriology. It's just the doctrine of salvation. And what is the basic doctrine of salvation? It's this, in Christ, we are saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin and we will be saved from the presence of sin. This is so key. We have been saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin and we shall be saved in the future from the presence of sin. And using theological language, we would say it like this, Jesus has made us righteous through justification. Again, soteriology talks about justification. This is declaring someone righteous. So Jesus has made us righteous. He's declared us righteous through justification. And Jesus is now engaged in the work through the word, through prayer, through the fellowship of the body of Christ within the church, through the work of the spirit of God. Jesus is in the process right now of perfecting righteousness in us through sanctification. So justification, sanctification, and the Bible promises that Jesus will make us perfectly righteous one day through glorification. So these three words are really important. Justification, sanctification, glorification. And Jesus is the only one who can save us completely and wholly from all of our sins from the punishment of sin, from the power of sin, and from the presence of sin. In the book of Hebrews chapter seven, we read there that the law can make nothing perfect. Hebrews seven verse 19, the law can make nothing perfect. But then in Hebrews chapter seven verse 25, we read this. Therefore, Jesus is also able to save completely those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So this means that when you trust in Christ, he removes your sin and gives you righteousness. 
It is as if you owed a huge debt. I'm sure no, none of you can identify with that. But imagine for a moment that you owed a huge debt, one that you could not pay. And not only did you owe a huge debt, but you had a massive overdraft on your account, your righteousness account. So you owe this massive debt, tens of millions of dollars. And not only do you owe this debt, but you look at your bank account and it is not just empty, but it has a negative balance of tens of millions of dollars. So you have overdraft and you have debt. That is what every single person in this world comes into this world with when it comes to sin. We have no righteousness and we have this huge debt of our sin. But the scriptures make very clear that Jesus pays the debt with the riches of his grace. And he not only pays the debt with the riches of his grace, but he also fills your righteousness account with his righteousness. The Bible says it like this in Romans chapter 4, verse 3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham, the father of our faith, he believed God and it was accounted to him. It was placed into his account. It was accounted to him for righteousness. How did he receive righteousness? He trusted in God. He believed in God and God gave him the righteousness that he did not have. But of course, after you are saved, you're not perfectly righteous in your conduct. You still do bad things. I still fail. We all continue to fail after we are rescued and saved from the penalty, the punishment of our sin. But he, Jesus, by his grace is working in you and with you to work out salvation. So that the salvation that God has done in your heart by grace through faith begins to work out through your life. My favorite verses in all of the Bible, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, it says there, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. So God saved us. He justified us. He dealt with the penalty of sin. Jesus bore the penalty for sin upon himself on the cross. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might receive by faith his righteousness credited to our account. That's justification. And he is working out that salvation. He works in us to will and to do his good pleasure as we are working out our salvation with fear and trembling. So there's something going on where we're engaged with God in this process of salvation that's called sanctification. And in the future, when Christ receives you to himself, he will transform this lowly body in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says, we shall be changed, transformed. This lowly earthly body will be transformed so it will be like his glorious body and we will no longer have the stain of sin on us. It says it like this in Philippians chapter 3 verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven from which we so eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. There is so much more that I could say on this topic because understanding salvation is important and there's so much in the Bible that talks about this topic and there are lots of verses that I could point to, but I've got to wrap this up because I could go on and on and on talking about this. We are not saved by our works, not by works of righteousness that we have done. Jesus saved us by his grace, because of his great love and because of his rich mercy. And he does this when we trust in him and we receive the free gift of his grace through the gospel. And at that moment, immediately, we are justified. We are declared righteous by God. Righteousness is added to your account. We 
are saved. It is done. And he immediately gives us the hope of ultimate salvation, which is the hope of glorification, when we are with him in his presence and we receive new bodies. This old, earthly, lowly body is gone. We're given a new body. But right now, we are working out salvation as he works in us by his word and by the spirit and by prayer and through the fellowship of other believers within the church. So it comes down to this. After having been justified, saved, and being assured of our future glorification, our focus is on the working out of salvation. This is our focus. This is to be your focus. If you are a follower of Christ, you have trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation, you've been declared righteous, you have the hope of heaven, now what? What do you do? Well, right now, because you are saved and shall be saved, we are in the process of being transformed. This process of working out our salvation is called sanctification. And this is where the disciplines of a disciple come in and where we are going over the next several weeks is we're going to talk about how do we grow in Christ likeness? He is perfectly righteous. How do we grow in Christ likeness so that we would display salvation in our lives to other people. And we're going to talk about how the word of God, prayer, the work of the spirit, and the work within the body of Christ, the church, how these things help us to grow more in Christlikeness. That's where we're going. I hope you'll be with us next week. So let me pray. Father God, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you so much for the salvation that you give to us in Christ Jesus, that Jesus, you came because of your great love, you demonstrated your love on the cross and died for us so that we might have life and life more abundantly. And, and through salvation, you have given us the righteousness that we did not have. You have paid our debt. You have promised us that we'll be with you for eternity. And you wanna work out that salvation in us by your spirit as we are working with you. So I pray God that you would teach us what that means and that you'd help us to grow in Christ likeness. But before we do, God, I wanna, I wanna pray for those that might be watching this that have not yet received that gift of your grace and salvation. And Lord, I pray that you would draw them to yourself by your Holy Spirit in this moment. Okay, before, before we finish praying, we finish up our service today, I wanna to speak to you if you've never trusted in Christ. As I shared today, the wages of sin is death and we are all sinners. We all will receive the just punishment for our sin. And if you want to receive the free gift of God's grace, the saving grace of Jesus Christ and his forgiveness, I wanna offer that to you today by asking you to trust in Jesus Christ. Whoever believes upon the Lord will not be put to shame. And in Romans chapter 10, we read in Romans chapter 10, if I can find it here in my Bible, my pages are very slippery. In Romans chapter 10, we read there at verse nine, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Past tense, rescued from your sin, justified. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scriptures say, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew or Greek. The same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you want to receive the grace of Jesus Christ for salvation, I want to lead you in a prayer today to do that. And then I want to ask you to go to the website that's going to be on the screen below and let us know that you did this so that we can reach out to you, get you a Bible if you don't have one, get you connected to a church if you're not in our location. So if you want to receive Christ today, I want to just lead you in a very simple prayer. 
Prayer, as we're going to talk about in a couple weeks, is talking to God. And when we talk to God, He hears us and He answers our prayers. And so you can pray right now a very simple prayer, something like this. If that's you, you want to receive God's grace, just talk to God where you're at, in your living room, watching on a cell phone, watching on the TV, wherever you might be. Pray simply this prayer. Dear Jesus, I recognize that I am a sinner. I have not lived up to your perfect standard. And I cannot save myself by my good works. I pray that you would come into my life, forgive me of my sin, and help me to trust in you and follow you by faith. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer today, go to the website down here below. We'd love to be in contact with you, get you connected to a church, get you a Bible. God bless you. Worship with us here as we close out with the end of the song.